the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. 2CP Bayonet Point, WTBN, Pinellas Park. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Now, Peter's point in bringing up the story of, of Balaam is simply to say that all false teachers follow this way, the way of, of Balaam, the way of greed and covetousness, the way of, of using their uh, oratory gifts or uh, abilities, speaking abilities, uh, their knowledge of the Lord to make some money. That's what he's talking about. It's exactly what false teachers do. They have some kind of uh, speaking ability and some knowledge of some truth or, or some spiritually sounding truth, and they want to use it to make money. They want as much money as they can get for their services. Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard said pretty much the same thing when he said writing for a penny a word is ridiculous. If a man really wanted to make a million dollars, the best way to do it would be to start his own religion. Well, these days, many preachers have improved on that idea and make tens of millions or even more. And they don't start new religions. They twist the gospel to offer a counterfeit Christianity, charging a fortune for what Christ already paid for on the cross. Welcome to Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, is our leader in these Bible studies of the air. And our topic is the dangers of false teachers. Pastor Steve has a lot on his mind today, so let's get started. While financial disclosures of many televangelists are hard to come by, suggesting that they have something to hide, I want you to know, by their own admission, some reveal that they are making a great deal of money. A lot of money. For example, I read this week about one television evangelist who justified greediness by relating the story about a pastor who was challenged by some people in his church about his high salary. So understand, this is a televangelist who is, who is writing or talking about a pastor who has probably some board members, I don't know who, but some in his church who have come to him and questioned and challenged uh, him on a, his very high salary. Now here, he said, the pastor told his challengers to, to go back and read your Bibles and see what the tithe is intended to do. Well, they spent, as the story goes, the next two weeks studying the subject of tithing. And when they came back to the pastor, this is what they said. They said, Pastor, the tithe belongs to you and to the ministers of this church. Offering should take care of everything else. Then this televangelist said that the pastor came to him with tears in his eyes and revealed that his salary, based on, on the tithe belonging to him, was going to be over $1 million a year. Now, think about that. A pastor getting a million dollars a year. You, you think this guy was a baseball player or something. I mean, and a utility one at that. A million dollars a year. No wonder this pastor had tears in his eyes. These are tears of joy, folks. He, he's not sad that he's just figured out he's going to get a million dollars a year. 
These are tears of happiness because he got what his heart, trained in greed, longed for all along money. Only now it looks spiritual. So Peter's words in in this verse help us to understand what really lies behind the message of men who preach a gospel or a message of prosperity. It is a heart of greed, trained in greed, a thirst for personal wealth. Understand that. That's what's behind it. And why do they thirst for wealth? It's because they are not true Christians. Know that they are not true Christians. They use some biblical terminology. They talk about Jesus. They look very happy in front of the screen. They have an appearance of being believers, but they are lost. They are unregenerate individuals, and and in weeks to come, we'll get into some of the theology. It is not the Christ of the Bible. Listen, one well-known man does not even believe in the Trinity. They are not regenerated people. They have never been transformed by conversion. They Therefore, they have the nature of an unsaved person, and that sinful nature is characterized by greed. That's the way we all are apart from Christ, and that's the way they are. And that's why Peter concludes, notice the end of verse 14, he calls them accursed children. That is to say, these men are under God's curse, as are all people who have failed to trust Christ as Savior. In other words, these false teachers are the recipients of God's wrath and his condemnation, and they will be judged for their rebellion towards him. That's what he's saying. They are unbelievers. Regardless of the jumping around and all the hoopla, they are unbelievers. If they were believers, they'd preach the gospel. They don't preach the gospel. So Peter has informed us that false teachers are money-hungry individuals who are under God's curse, but how did they get to this point in their lives? Didn't happen overnight. Notice, verse 15 says, starts off by saying, forsaking the right way, They've gone astray. That is to say, these men know the truth about Jesus Christ. They know the right way. They've been exposed to the true gospel. And at one time, they even pretended to walk down the path of of biblical truth. That's what they claimed. But Peter tells us they have left the right way. They have abandoned it. They have forsaken it, the biblical path. And in forsaking the right way, they have wandered away from the truth and they have gone astray. They have gone down another path. Now, understand what Peter is teaching us. False teachers have deliberately left God's way for their own way. They are not confused. They have not just been led astray because somebody else has imposed something upon them. They came to a point in their lives where they made a conscious decision to turn away from biblical truth in order to follow their heart's desire to do what they always wanted to do, though they were at one time stifled by biblical standards. But when you turn away from the Bible, you don't have to be stifled by those standards. You do and you pursue what your heart desires all along, and that's to make as much money as possible. And that's what's happening. And by the way, this is not simply uh, uh, tele-evangelists. This is all false teachers. I'm just using them because it's so obvious where they're coming from by preaching a prosperity gospel. But these folks, false teachers, want to make as much money as possible, but they use religion as a cloak for their covetousness. That's all. Now, departing from God's way, Peter tells us they've gone another way. There is a name to that. There is a biblical name for going the way of greed. It is called the way of Balaam. Verses 15 and 16, Peter says, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey 
speaking with the voice of a man, restrain the madness of the prophet. Peter illustrates the greediness of false teachers by reminding his readers of an interesting, a fascinating Old Testament character by the name of Balaam. His story is in Numbers chapters 22 through 25. So let's turn back there. Numbers would be just before the book of Deuteronomy, the beginning of the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 22 through 25. We're told in these chapters about a Moabite king by the name of Balak. So I've given you two characters now to remember, Balaam and Balak, two different men. Balak was the king of Moab, and this was a time where the children of Israel were, were marching through the wilderness. They had come to the land of Moab, and Balak sees them. He knows about them, and he is afraid that the Israelites are going to attack the Moabites and destroy his people. So this king, knowing that he could not defeat Israel militarily because he's heard about them, he has decided to defeat them another way. And we're, we're told about this in Numbers 22, verses 5 and 6. So he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, a people came out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the surface of the land. They are living opposite me. He's talking about the children of Israel. Now, therefore, please come curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. He wanted, and he's calling upon Balaam to curse the Israelites so that he would be able to defeat them. Now, who was Balaam? Balaam was an ancient uh, pagan soothsayer. He was not a true believer. The New Testament speaks of him as an unbeliever. Uh, in fact, three times the New Testament condemns Balaam, the book of Revelation and the book of Jude and Second Peter, not a believer, but he was a fascinating character, an ancient pagan uh, soothsayer, uh, somewhat of a prophet. A uh, Gentile had some knowledge of the true God, some knowledge. He was noted, as we said, to be able to do uh, uh, prophetic utterances and supernatural work. So uh, Balak calls upon Balaam to curse Israel. Now, the story in Numbers 22 goes on to say that God specifically told Balaam, you will not curse this people because I've blessed them. You'll not curse the people that I have specifically blessed. And um, then Balaam sends his messengers or sends the king word by way of his messengers saying, I cannot curse this people. I refuse to do that. But the king does not take no for an answer. Instead, he turns around and he sends the messengers back. And now he offers Balaam a great sum of money to come and curse Israel. In other words, he tried to hire him to prophesy. As, I, as I've said before, that, that kind of catchy little phrase, a prophet for profit is what he's trying to do. So at first, Balaam's initial response in the story is uh, seems to be very noble. He turns down this amount of money, says, no, I can't do it. But the rest of the story reveals something very different. It reveals that he longed deeply for the monetary reward. He didn't take it because God told him, don't curse these people, but uh, he wanted it. And he's looking for any way to do it. He had enough fear of God to not curse the people, but he's sure looking for a way to get this money. So God becomes very angry with Balaam, and he sends the angel of the Lord to block his path while he's on the way to Balak. And we read about this 
in verses 22 through 31. And I read this because this is what Peter is referring to about the, the dumb donkey speaking. But God was angry because he was going, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field, but Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back into the way. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path of the vineyards with a wall on his side and a wall on that side. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed herself to the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. The angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the left or to the right hand rather or to or the left. When the donkey saw the, the angel, the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his stick. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Then Balaam said to the donkey, See, I think that's the amazing miracle. The guy is talking to the donkey. Not that the donkey talked to him, but he just talks back. That, that to me, is the real astounding thing here. Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a mockery of me. If there has been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And he said, no. Then the angel of the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with a drawn sword in his hand and he bowed all the way to the ground. Now, obviously, this is an incredible miracle. This is something that uh, doesn't happen every day. This is unique, but it should not be a problem for us because if God is God, he can do whatever he wants. And this was a crisis in the history of Israel, a serious crisis. You have a, a king trying to hire a man to, who, who is a prophet in some sense to curse the chosen people. And so God did a miraculous work, something completely out of the ordinary. This donkey spoke. Peter, that's what he's referring to. You go back to Second Peter 2.16 when he says he received a rebuke for his own transgression for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. The madness is going to Balak hoping that he could get money to, uh, to speak against Israel. Now, Peter's point in bringing up the story of, of Balaam is simply to say that all false teachers follow this way, the way of, of Balaam, the way of greed and covetousness, the way of, of using their uh, oratory gifts or uh, abilities, speaking abilities, uh, their knowledge of the Lord to make some money. That's what he's talking about. It's exactly what false teachers do. They have some kind of uh, speaking ability and some knowledge of some truth or, or some spiritually sounding truth, and they want to use it to make money. They want as much money as they can get for their services. Now, hopefully, after studying these verses, you, you have a greater understanding of what is it that actually motivates a false teacher. It's, it's money, pleasure-seeking and money. It's greed. It is greed that is behind the message of prosperity. That's, that's all. But if you ever challenge a false teacher on this, if you ever question them about this prosperity gospel that they preach, you know what they'll tell you? Let me, let me tell you, they'll, they'll generally come back with two responses. Response number one, they'll tell you that, uh, that God desires all of his children to be wealthy because you are children of the king. You are kids of the king. And a, and a king's child does not, does not settle for anything but the best. Now, 
What's our, what's our response, uh, response to this? Yes, Jesus is a king, but he is a king who right now is in exile. If we could put it that way, he is a king who has not come into his earthly kingdom. Certainly he reigns sovereignly over the, the world, but he is a king who has not come into his, his domain in terms of a physical millennial kingdom. We're persecuted in the world. We're, we're not, we're not to, to, to live luxuriously because we are children of the king, a king that nobody except believers in this world recognizes. In fact, Paul said that believers are to be what? Content. Content. In fact, scripture specifically forbids us, uh, in the pursuit of, of wealth. Do you know that? Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Just the opposite of what false teachers say, Scripture condemns. False teachers tell us that we're supposed to pursue wealth. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that we are not to pursue wealth. Notice chapter 6, verse 5. He's speaking about false teachers. He says they, uh, there's constant friction between men of depraved minds and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. They're using a godly appearance to gain money. But he says godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contempt. Yes, there's spiritual gain, not, not financial gain, for we have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. And then he says, for those who want to get rich, you don't even have to be rich to be uh, condemned in the sin. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a, and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction for the love of money. He didn't say money, but the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul is saying just the opposite of, of live like a, like a, a child of the king in terms of money and wealth and luxury. Yes, we're children of the king, but Paul tells us to be content. Secondly, if you challenge them on their prosperity gospel, they will also tell you that Jesus is our example, and he, they would say, was not poor. In fact, they would say he was quite wealthy. In fact, I told you last week, that's behind the thinking of a man like Fred Price when he made the statement that I'm following Jesus, and that's why I drive a Rolls Royce. Now, let's think about that for a moment. Was Jesus wealthy? Well, we're told that he was. In fact, John Avanzini on a TBN program said this, and I quote, John 19 tells us that Jesus wore designer clothes. Well, he said, what else are you going to call it? Designer clothes? That's blasphemy. No, that's what we call them today. I mean, you didn't get that stuff off the rack. It wasn't a one-size-fits-all deal. No, this was custom stuff. It was the kind of a garment that kings and rich merchants wore that garment. He is referring to uh, on the night of his arrest when uh, when the soldiers arrested him, Jesus had a garment, an outer garment, not the inner garment, but an outer garment that uh, was rather well made. In fact, you remember that's why the soldiers cast lots for it. They didn't want to tear it in half or in four places. Yeah, it was a nice outfit. But but listen, to to build an argument, to base an argument that Jesus was wealthy, because he had one outfit that was nice on the night he arrested him, that's just poor hermeneutics or method of interpretation. For all we know, for all we know, maybe some wealthy person made it for him. 
After all, Jesus healed a lot of people and cast demons out of a lot of people. There may have been included in that group some wealthy person just said, Lord, I want to do this for you. So maybe his mother made that for him, and that uh, was the one really nice thing that he had. We, we don't know. But to say that he was wealthy because he had one nice outfit, that's, that's just poor interpretation. In fact, the Bible does not present Jesus as a wealthy man who had the most expensive wardrobe in all of Israel. He's not presented like that. But let me tell you something you may not have, have heard or thought about. The Bible also doesn't present Jesus Christ as poor, born into poverty, sort of a homeless person who calls his followers to live a life of poverty. Let me explain. At the time of, of Christ, Israel had a uh, very small but very influential, wealthy upper class. Small, influential. They also had a very large population of poor people. So a very small group of people who were wealthy, very large group of people who were poor. But in the middle, in the middle, there was a middle class made up of craftsmen and tradesmen. This would include uh, farmers. Toolmakers, builders, people, people with a profession like that. Now, the family of Jesus would have fit into the economy of being middle class. It was Joseph, his father, who had a construction business. Now, you say, that doesn't sound right, construction business. I thought he was a carpenter. Uh, the Bible says and translates it carpenter, but the Greek word that's used for carpenter can also be and probably should be translated builder. Builder does not mean he was limited to, to wood, working with wood. In fact, if you go to Israel, you'll notice there are far more stones in Israel than there is wood. When you see on the, on the television, the Palestinians, and you hear about them throwing rocks, these are not little pebbles. These are not pebbles. These are stones that if they hit you in the head, you die. Everywhere in Israel are stones. They have no shortage of stones. They do have a shortage of wood. That's why when, when someone goes to Israel today, we, uh, we plant trees to replenish the forestry. It is more likely that Joseph built houses of stones than wood furniture, though he may have done some of that. We also know from historians that during the time of Christ, construction was absolutely flourishing around the Galilee area, and that's where he would have grown up. That's where he did grow up, in Nazareth. It's not on the Sea of Galilee, but it's in the district of Galilee. So it is very likely that Joseph had a successful construction business and provided for his family a very comfortable, middle-class lifestyle. And keep this in mind, at the death of Joseph, which we assume happened, in, in uh, the gospel accounts, though we're not, it's not revealed to us, but you never hear about him after a while. We would assume that when, when he died, he died during the lifetime of Jesus. And Jesus, being the oldest son in the family, would have received, remember what a, what a son received in, in Jewish families? They received, the oldest son received a double inheritance. So I think Jesus would have been very comfortable. I think he would have been very middle class in terms of economy. You say, but wait a minute. He said foxes have places, and uh, but I don't have a place to, to lay my head. Well, I think w when you take that into account, it has to be this, that after he began his ministry, that's when he depended upon others to house him and feed him and take care of him. This is really no different than somebody today who goes into missions. They may have been raised in a very wealthy family. They may have been raised in a very comfortable middle-class family. But when you become a missionary... You depend on God's people to take care of you for support. That's no different than what, what happened with Jesus. 
But to say that he was born into poverty and he was uh, basically homeless, uh, I don't think that's accurate at all. So he wasn't wealthy, but he certainly wasn't financially destitute. But some people see it that way, and they would say that he was financially destitute, and he calls us as his followers to, to be like that, especially those in the ministry. Said the biblical perspective is this from ministers. That those in the ministry, while they're not to be greedy, and they're certainly not to make a million dollars, it is the responsibility of God's people to make sure that they're provided for so they can concentrate on ministry and not have to be distracted with their financial concerns. So let me, let me explain. This is an appropriate place to do this. In contrast to false teachers who are greedy, the New Testament specifically commands true teachers and true pastors, true shepherds, not to be greedy and not to minister for the sake of money. Our time is about up for today, so I hope you can join us for the next Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve Kreloff will back up that last statement with Scripture. Pastor Steve serves as the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. And Verse by Verse is the radio outreach of that ministry. Find out more at our website, versebyverseradio.org. We've been hearing a lot these past two days about the greediness of false teachers. It's interesting stuff, at least to me. But how does it affect our day-to-day lives? And how can we apply what we've been hearing to our own lives? I'm Jerry Peterson. Next time on Verse by Verse, Pastor Steve will begin to draw together the threads of this message into three specific things that you and I should keep in mind, which will help. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.